happy eighth day of Christmas. Uh, in the Christian tradition, particularly that part of the Christian tradition in which we find our home, Christmas is not only one day, but there are 12 days of Christmas. So Christmas goes through this coming Thursday, and then Friday, January the 6th, is Epiphany. And I hope that you will keep celebrating Christmas and then receive Epiphany when it comes. The text that we traditionally use as we think about the holiday of Epiphany is the text that involves the coming of the wise men to visit Jesus. So I call your attention to Matthew chapter 2. I'll begin reading with verse 1. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Judea, wise men, or you can call them magi, because the Greek word there is magioi, you can call them astrologers. Uh, we, we almost certainly know they were Zoroastrian priests who came from Persia uh, seeking the Christ child. So these wise men came from the east, came from the east, came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child? Notice it says the child. Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Pay attention to the re reoccurrence of the word homage here in this text. They say, we have come to pay him homage. When, G when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. If King Herod was not happy, no one was happy. And the people of Jerusalem knew that. So Herod, verse 4, and calling together all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah, the Christ, was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay homage to him. That's what Herod says. You do know that some politicians lie, right? <laughs> he says he wants to go pay homage to this one that has been born. Continuing, then opening, so continuing, because he really doesn't want to do that. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child, the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy on entering the house. Notice the house. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. There's that word again. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold. That's an appropriate gift for a king. Frankincense, that was used in worship. It was a gift for God. And myrrh, and myrrh was used in burial rites. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. 
Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that this morning your Holy Spirit will help us to submit more of our lives to your word. We thank you for the ways that your word has formed us and has reformed us and is continuing to transform us so that we can live as your peculiar people here in this world. We give you thanks for calling us, for calling us to this time. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So, Epiphany is about an epiphany, a manifestation of Jesus Christ to the world. And what you see here in this text is you see Gentiles, foreigners, Zoroastrian priests coming from Persia to worship the Christ child. They come to welcome, to receive, to worship, to pay homage to the Christ child. This is a perfect time to deal with a a question that came from many of you in many different ways. And the question is this, what do we do with, what do we do for, how do we relate to those people that do not want to welcome, do not want to receive, do not want to worship or pay homage to the Christ child? So uh, that was a question that came in in many different forms and formats. Let me uh, make two observations to help us with that struggle, because all of us from time to time struggle with dealing with people in our lives who just do not want to hear anything about Jesus Christ. And they almost are antagonistic, sometimes even openly hostile to the Christian faith. So how should we respond to that? Um, Two reflections. This is the first one. As Christians, it is our mission to simply tell what we know. It is our mission to point to Jesus Christ. It is our mission to tell the world about Jesus and who Jesus is. We can't get around that. We don't want to get around that. We are called to do that. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. We just report what we have, what we have heard and received. We just tell the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. We, we simply decide that it is good news and we refuse to let the world around us tell us it's bad news. We are not responsible, by the way, for converting anyone. Conversion is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John Wesley one time famously said that we just second the work of the Holy Spirit. We sort of point people in the right direction, but it's the Holy Spirit who woos people to Christ, who leads people to Christ, and then converts them to Christ. We just report what we know. We report the truth of God's Word. And um, it's not up to us to make it effective in the lives of other people. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. A verse that I've always uh, found very helpful in this regard is uh, 1 Peter 3.15 where the apostles said that we as Christians, we ought to set our hearts to honor Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared, always being prepared, church, to make a defense to anyone who asks you, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So uh, we should always be prepared to uh, give a report, an account, 
of the hope, the faith, the joy that is in us as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ. I've always taken a strange sense of comfort from this verse in the sense that this verse says, as, as you noticed, we ought to be able, always ready, prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us, who asks you for the reason, for the hope, the faith, the joy that you have in Jesus Christ, yet always do it with gentleness and respect. Jesus gave us the Great Commission. We're to go to all the world. We're to go to all the nations. But um, for me personally, I, I tend to think one-on-one, -on -one, I let the person come to me. I let the person ask me. Now, I don't hide my faith. I don't feel the need to tell them about it every time I see them. But I try to live in such a way that they will ask me. They will ask me about the faith that I have. They'll ask me about the joy that I have, the peace that I have, the assurance that everything's going to work out okay in the end. I want them to ask me about that. I do the work of trying to build a bridge to people, a bridge over which Christ may pass from my life to their life. So I just work on building the relationship with people. Um, again, it's the Holy Spirit that that converts. I don't shy away from my faith. I don't think there's anybody who knows me that does not know how important Jesus Christ is to me. hope the same is true for you. But we don't, have to, we don't have to throw a lot of words at them every time we see them. We just live in such a way that they will ask us about this faith. But probably the more, more significant reflection is this. Because this is where the rubber meets the road. What do we do about, how do we relate to, how do we welcome and receive those people that really do not want to welcome, receive, worship, pay homage to Jesus? And sometimes they're adamant about making sure we know where they are. How do we respond to them? Well, I think it's important for us always to understand that we, we, we can't change, we cannot change the message, we cannot change the mission to suit the sensitivities or the sensibilities of the people around us. We Christians have known this for 2,000 years. We've, we've lived this reality for 2,000 years. We Christians have never really been in a culture where the majority of the culture supported us. So we have learned, we have practiced for 2,000 years how to hold to a faith regardless of what the people around us say about our faith. We're in a strange new era. It's always been part of our experience, but I think it's more so now. We're in a strange new era where there are a lot of people who want to embrace the Christian faith. They say they've embraced the Christian faith, but they want, they want to have nothing to do with the exclusive demands of Jesus. And you can't read the Gospels, read the New Testament, and miss those exclusive demands that Jesus makes. Jesus said that uh, he was the Son of God. Jesus declared that he had a unique relationship with the Father. He was one with the Father, he said. Jesus said that he was, he was and is the very bringer of eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Our culture does not like that word, by the way. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
Jesus said he is the one who brings eternal life. He is the one who is the giver of eternal life. Jesus Christ even was so bold, was so audacious to say several times in the Gospels that he would judge the world. He would judge everyone. The Apostle Paul said one time in the book of Romans that everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. These are some of the exclusive claims that are there in the gospel. And I really don't know how you do Christianity without reverencing and respecting these exclusive claims from Jesus. He said he would be the one to judge the world. Now, I take comfort in that that statement also because every time I remember that he is the one to judge the world, that, that reminds me that it is he and not we who judge the world. And we'll be talking about judgment next week, as a matter of fact. But it is he and not we who judge the world, and I'm grateful for that. One of the things I I believe is that um, Jesus is the one who saves. That's apparent in the New Testament. That's been apparent in Christian faith. That's a non-negotiable in Christian faith. If anyone is saved, they are saved because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things, though, I think about when I say that is that... um, Jesus will save some people that will surprise me. Jesus will save some people that will surprise you. John Newton, the person who wrote Amazing Grace, said that there will be several things that will shock him when he gets to heaven. When he sees what heaven really is and what he has received, he'll be shocked that he is there. But then he'll also be shocked when he sees who else is there. Jesus is the one who saves. We don't tell Jesus who he can save, who he cannot save. Now, obviously, if you embrace Jesus by faith, he embraces you. Obviously, if you reject Jesus Christ, he will allow you to do that. But there are people that are saved by Jesus that, that, and this is not normal, but there are people that are saved by Jesus outside of those those categories, that category. Think about infants for a few moments. If an infant is saved, and we think they are, we believe they are, you know, should an infant, God forbid, die in infancy or soon thereafter, heaven or hell? Well, obviously heaven. Obviously heaven. Now, why? Well, please, don't participate in heresy by saying they are so sweet and innocent. They're born with the human condition, just like all the rest of us. Um, They are saved because of Jesus Christ. That's why a big part of the Christian tradition uh, baptizes infants, because we know that when I baptize an infant, I know I'm baptizing someone that is participating in the work of Jesus Christ and been saved by the work of Jesus Christ. Now, when I baptize an adult, I have to pray that that is the case. But with an infant, I know that is. And infants are saved One and only one way, because of the work of Christ. That's why they can be identified with Christ in baptism. There's not two ways to be saved, Jesus and your innocence up to about age seven. That doesn't work. That's two. I'm not good at math, but that's two ways of being saved. There's only one way of being saved. Any saving that's done is done by Jesus. But we need to be a little gracious and um, profess a little ignorance when we say who all Jesus saves. Now, another group, perhaps, would be 
those people out there who will never, ever, ever have the cognitive mental capability to understand our creeds, to understand who the, we profess that the New Testament declares Jesus Christ is. I think Jesus, the work of Jesus, covers those people. But if you're not in one of those unusual categories, you need to receive Christ, or you'll be participating in rejecting Christ. All the saving that is done is done by Jesus. Jesus says he will judge the world. Not you, not me, and I'm so grateful for that. Jesus is the only one that can see into the human heart. So he makes these audacious claims as part and parcel of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ even famously said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he famously said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's always been interesting to me as a United Methodist pastor. We have a book of worship. In our book of worship, there's our services, our outlines for our services. In our funeral service, the gospel that is printed there, that many of us love to use in funeral services, comes from John 14. You remember John 14. Jesus said, uh, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house. There are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what we have in the book of worship, for you nine Methodist pastors, is selections from John 14. It covers that. It covers some of the part of the end of John chapter 14 where Jesus says, my peace I give unto you. The peace that I give unto you is not the kind of peace the world gives unto you. The world cannot take away the kind of peace I give unto you. So there's selections from John 14 in our funeral uh, service. And many of us love to use selections from John 14. And we don't want to read the whole chapter to you. The whole chapter obviously is wonderful. We don't want to read the whole chapter to you at a funeral. So we use those selections. But what I've noticed for the last... Um, 30-some years since we've had that book of worship, when I'm reading those selections from John chapter 14, I notice what's there, and I'm so grateful for what's there, but I notice what's missing. They, they do not say, but by the way, if you come to funerals, I do, I say it. I just pretend it's in front of me, and I just insert it. After Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Our book of worship doesn't say it, but I say it, because at that point, Thomas said, how do we know the way? And at that point, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I have my suspicions as to why that verse is not in the selections from John 14 that we read at funerals. It's just my suspicion. I see people in this culture that want to try to do Christianity separated from all the exclusive demands of Jesus. But I'm not even sure that's even watered-down Christianity. I'm afraid that's not Christianity at all. So we can't ignore that stuff. So here's where the rubber really does meet the road. Again, what about the people in our lives that refuse to welcome, receive, worship, pay homage to Jesus. We all have people in our lives like that. We all have people in our families, our circle of friends that we know just would not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't want them to turn the good news into the bad news, but they refuse. And they hear it almost as bad news. Everything we say about the good news of Jesus Christ. How do we relate to them? What do we do with them? 
C.S. Lewis, and I hope you know who C.S. Lewis is, C.S. Lewis, the greatest defender of the Christian faith in the 20th century, I think, for 30 years, he took care of in his home a mother-type figure named Mrs. Moore. For 20 of those 30 years, when he took care of Mrs. Moore, and she was the mother of a friend of his who got killed in World War I, and he literally took her in and took care of her because her son had gotten killed, a friend of his had gotten killed in World War I. Mrs. Moore was not a Christian. Mrs. Moore lived with C.S. Lewis for 30 years, the last 20 years of which C.S. Lewis was a Christian. C.S. Lewis wrote in more than one place, every Sunday morning, 7.45 after he became a Christian, 7.45, he left his house and he went to the local church for worship. Every Sunday morning, Mrs. Moore gave him grief, gave him sarcasm, told him he was going to celebrate the, that blood festival that we Christians celebrate, the Holy Communion. So for 20 of the 30 years he took care of Mrs. Moore, he dealt with that. And I think one of the reasons one of C.S. Lewis's friends said he was one of the most converted people he had ever met was because he, he knew how C.S. Lewis had taken care of Miss Moore for 30 years, even with her being so antagonistically opposed to the Christian faith. So we can take some advice from Mr. Lewis on how to deal with those people in our lives that do not want to welcome receive worship or pay homage to Jesus Christ. Um, you know, I've always thought to myself that uh, I don't think I need to repeat to people with whom I'm in close relationship um, my faith. I don't give my creed every time I walk in the room with them. I do that, by the way, concerning my faith. I do that, by the way, concerning advice in general. I try not to give advice in general if I'm asked. So I don't have to tell them over and over and over again because I'm in relationship. I want to be in relationship with these people. Just like Peter said, we need to treat everyone with great dignity, respect, unconditional love, unconditional kindness. We're called to treat everyone that way, especially those who disagree with us. Now, I know the world in which we live today thinks you cannot love people with whom you disagree. And we, for 2,000 years, have been showing the world an alternative. Yes, we can love people with whom we disagree. We don't let go of our Christian faith, particularly those core convictions about who Jesus is, those core convictions that come to us through the creeds out of the New Testament. We, 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 don't, we don't change those to suit people's sensitivity, to suit the cultural whims of the age. We are called to love these people. We are called to show them unconditional kindness. We outlove everyone else. We outlove even our enemies. You remember what Jesus told you to do to your enemies? We outlove everyone else. And we just live in such a way that they at some point may ask us about this faith that we have. We live in such a way that, that our faith can become can become contagious. Our faith can become something that they want in their lives. Let me give you a heavy-duty 
profound piece of theology. Church, Christians, don't, don't, don't be a jerk. You know, I, 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 we're in a culture that just loves to be a jerk, and I realize it's easier to be a jerk on social media than it is even in person with someone. But don't be a jerk. That doesn't help our faith. That doesn't help the cause. That wins no one to Christ. Again, the Holy Spirit, you just second the work of the Holy Spirit. You give the Holy Spirit something to work with. The Holy Spirit never creates arrogant, obnoxious people. I firmly believe that. So be careful, very careful, how you relate to the people around you that don't want to embrace the Christian faith. We, we all have them in our family. You know, I, I'm always amazed at people who will change their core convictions, will change their faith, they will, they will sort of remission the Christian faith because of someone in their life that they love, perhaps a child. You know, I think if we changed what we believe every time you know, our children embrace something else, our children would get a great sense of insecurity. You know, I, I've got children that are where I am with the Christian faith that has absolute no impact on my love for them. You know, I have a lot of people in my life that they know enough about me and they know enough about my faith. If I were to show up one day and um, just be so totally different about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is requiring of me. If I showed up one day so totally different about that, that, that they would think I had a stroke, probably. We, 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 we are who we are. We need to be firm about who we are. We need to be able to, to ask what we're, to, to respond to what we're asked. But we got to do it in a way that's winsome, gentle, respectful, and loving. I hope as you begin a new year that you will um, uh, commit to learning more about your faith and going deeper with Jesus Christ. I want to close, close and leave you with a couple of um, suggestions. One, I'm suggesting to everybody today to pick up this new, new Year's challenge from me. And for the month of January, I want to encourage you to read one chapter from the book of Proverbs each day. Uh, I learned this years ago. I heard it first from Dr. Billy Graham. You know, there's 31 days in January. There's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. So you know what ch chapter you're supposed to read each day. Read, read those 31 chapters, one chapter a day. In a world where we're flooded with information, in a world that is in the midst of a famine for wisdom, seek the wisdom that God has. And, of course, at the beginning of Proverbs, you'll see that the, the writer of Proverbs says, he says throughout um, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So another resource I, I commend to you, second, secondly, Beyond the Bible, is a book that has impacted me a great deal here lately. It's a book entitled Recovering Our Sanity, subtitled How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us. This book by Michael Horton, Recovering Our Sanity, is an amazing book. The first half of the book is very theological. He teaches us that it is our fear of God, our right relationship with God, 
that keeps us from being afraid of people or circumstances or life or history. You know, make sure our fear is in the right place. We, we fear God and God alone. We're in a right relationship with God. That's how we restore our sanity. We don't fear these other people that are different from us. We don't fear people who have separate agendas from us because we've got God on our side. The kingdom will come and the, the will of God will prevail. In that book, Recovering Our Sanity, he, he reminds us that we are in an age of great polarization. Do you realize that 30 years ago, and I was already in the ministry 30 years ago, one out of every 20 Americans, there's only one out of every 20 Americans, said they were unaffiliated in regards to religion. Now that number's up to one out of every four. Say they're unaffiliated in regards to religion. That number is growing. We need to do a better job of taking Christ to the nation, of taking Christ to the Gentiles, taking Christ to the people in our family and our circle of friends. And um, Michael Horton concludes near the end of the book, he, he, he prays that all of the churches, all of the Christian churches can become churches where the gospel is being proclaimed every Sunday, that every church will become an embassy of grace where people can become part of a fellowship of forgiven and repentant sinners that know how to welcome the them into being part of us. That's my prayer for Wesley Memorial. That's my prayer for each one of us. We're going to leave this place in a few moments. We're going to go into 2023. We're going to go back to our circles of influence. Make sure you're building bridges to everyone you meet across which...